You already know that sleep is important, but not just any sleep will do. In fact, there's one particular sleep phase that's responsible for most of your body's daily repair, for hunger and for weight loss hormones, even how you manage your energy and a lot of other things. And if you don't get enough of that phase of sleep, you'll probably always struggle with cravings, slow metabolism, premature aging, or even worse, all the stuff that I dealt with as a young man before I figured out biohacking. That phase of sleep is called deep sleep, and barely any of us are getting the amount that you really want. One big reason for that is because 80% of human beings today are magnesium deficient. That's a big problem because magnesium cranks up GABA in your body, it helps you relax at a cellular level, and it enables deeper sleep. Plus, it keeps stress and anxiety in check, and those are things that can ruin your sleep. Now, before you grab just any magnesium supplement, here's a tip. You need all seven forms of magnesium. Most supplements out there will give you one or maybe two forms. That's why I take Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers every morning and actually every night. It's got all seven forms of magnesium you need for less stress and for better sleep, and it's all in one bottle. And it's the most bioavailable form I've found. You can notice a huge change in stress levels and sleep quality and how refreshed you feel during the day. I certainly do. The difference is massive. So check it out for yourself. Go to magbreakthrough.com slash Dave. Use code Dave10 and they'll give you 10% off. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly Bulletproof Radio. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Today, we're going to talk about using video games to treat ADHD. Okay, well, maybe not, but maybe. We're going to talk about distraction and focus and how actually video games, not all of them, not used unconsciously, though, might be a benefit to you. And I wanted to do this interview because years ago, now I'm going to disclose my calendar age, even though my lab tests don't agree with them. When I was in college in the early 90s, I was the only person who had a laptop because I spent $5,000 in $1990, which is the equivalent of like $5 million of today dollars because inflation is real. But it was the first time I had one. And I started playing a game called Free Cell, which is basically solitaire. And I played it all day, every day in class while I was taking a double course load for the first time in my life. And I got a 3.9 GPA that semester, which was the highest GPA of my entire life because of video games. <laughs> and what I realized was that my brain stayed engaged because I was just doing kind of a mindless card game and I was still listening. And I would just switch over, to type out whatever was important and then go back to the video game. And then all the other people in class would get really offended and they'd say, Dave, how disrespectful to play a video game during class. And then I would look at them and I'd say, how disrespectful to look at my screen, that was private. Uh, which created usually seizures in those people. But then I would say, would you like a copy of my notes? And magically, my notes were better than their notes because I had a computer, but I could only pay attention because I was playing a video game because, yes, I did have ADHD. So that is one case that I maybe wrote about in one of my books I talked about early on in a blog post, but it's the real deal. And so... There are many other things like lumosity and things like that. So I wanted to go into some details on distraction 
and on focus. And I want you to learn some things from this episode. Our guest is a co-founder and chief science advisor of the Achille Interactive and Jazz Venture Partners. And he's the David Dolby Distinguished Professor of Neurology, Physiology, and Psychiatry at UCSF. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. Really excited about it. I guess I should also say your name is a Professor or Dr. Adam Gazali, although you go by Adam. Yes, Adam is fine. <laughs> I was too distracted. I saw a squirrel. <laughs> Get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get right into the, the details here. Do you like ice cream? Oh, sorry. ADHD, it, it just happened. <laughs> How do you measure attention? Yeah, that's a, a great question and a challenging one. And I can tell you the main reason why it's so challenging is what do we mean by attention? Attention is one of these tricky things in that if you use the word, everyone feels pretty comfortable that they know what you're talking about. But I could easily spend an entire hour now and break down attention in so many different ways and from so many different perspectives. And each one of those ways of looking at attention has a different metric and a different measurement tool. So attention is actually incredibly complicated. And of course, and I think everyone appreciates this, it's sort of built into using the word is that it's important, really, really, really important. I would say it may be the most important human function. Uh, without it, we're essentially incapacitated by an inability to filter out all the irrelevant information around us and focus on what we're intending to. So I, I just want to preface that, and, and I'd love to spend an hour talking about attention, but we want to talk about a lot more than that. Usually when people are talking about attention and, and they just use it quickly, what they're talking about is top-down selective attention. And so, you know, we have attention systems that allow us to pay attention to things that we're not trying to all the time. Our survival depends upon that type of attention. But when people like, how do you measure attention? They're usually talking about top-down, that's goal-directed attention, and not necessarily sustained attention, although that's another aspect of attention, but how effectively do we focus our limited resources in space and in time and resist the distracting information that threatens to derail that focus. So let's just define attention that way. Um, it's one of many ways. And there's lots of different tools. So you can measure it in a lab with quantitative tests. We use many of them. One of them that we use in a lot of our research, including our video game research as an outcome measure, is called the sustained focus test or the test of variable attention. And it's looking at two important aspects of attention, both your ability to focus on what's relevant and resist what is irrelevant and also sustaining over time because it built into attention is some type of temporal dimension that if you're not holding it, it's barely attention. And so there's lots of laboratory tests to do that and quantify that, how fast you respond, also your response time variability. People are familiar with heart rate variability. I'm sure a lot of your listeners is also RTV, RT variability, which is a metric of not just how well you deploy your attention, but how variable it is it, is it over time? How well can you maintain that focus of attention? And then, of course, there are ways of using neural and physiological recordings to also understand the mechanistic underpinnings of how well you're focusing your attention. This can be miraculous to understand. I came across this when I got my first brain scan from Dr. Daniel Amen. Today, I'm on his board of directors for Amen Clinics. 
And I had a spec scan of my brain because I was failing out of Wharton Business School. And I could tell something was wrong. It was actually really scary. And I was ashamed at the time because I qualified to get extra time on my test because I, as soon as I started taking a test, I'd get 100% on the first question, 80% on the second. And after that, it was 30% then zero. And it was like, no matter how hard I tried to think, there was just nothing in there. Hmm. And what we learned was that I was literally shutting down activity in my prefrontal cortex. There was no metabolic activity there. I had mold toxin-induced brain damage. Hmm. And so I went and I did a battery of tests, including how variable is my attention? What's the response time on attention? And what's my TOVA score? And I got really into hacking that so I could learn how to pay attention. And I did. Partly I had Asperger's, partly I had ADHD. And you can train your ability to pay attention just like you can retrain your vision, you can retrain your hearing, all of which I've had to do. And magically, I can pay attention, at least to things I care about, for long periods of time. And if I don't care about it, instead of just being unable to care, I choose to go do something else. But it's a choice. Mm -hmm. Right, like I'll I'll not finish the book because I didn't think it was worth the time. Versus I can't finish the book Mm -hmm. or the lecture or whatever it is. How common is it that people consciously train their attention? Well, I I really liked what you said. And in some ways, it's the journey I've been on for the last fifteen years is to apply both rigorous and intentional design of tools to help you accomplish that, and then do deep dive research studies to figure out does it work? And how can it be better? And so what you described was sort of like my mission. Prior to the last 15 years, I had been working on understanding attention using functional brain imaging, both fMRI and EEG and all sorts of tests. And you know, my conclusion was the one that many scientists have reached is that our attention is really vulnerable and fragile to all sorts of interference. And our modern world is not making it any easier. I I wrote an entire book on this called The Distracted Mind. And it's not like a cheery topic. It's like, wow, we are struggling. And then I was like, man, I do not want to tell that story for the rest of my life because it is a bummer and it's not um, in any way activating people besides just alerting them to the challenges. So knowing, being aware of your challenge is critical for all sorts of change, but it's not enough in itself. And so can we design tools that selectively target these networks and have the ability to adapt so that you're really challenging at the highest possible level? And that's what I've been working on. So to answer your question specifically, I'd say most people don't train their attention, even when they recognize that their attention is suboptimal for for what they're trying to accomplish in life. And, you know, many people first are aware of their attention challenges, maybe through a teacher at school or their friends or their significant others, and then get a little more clarity, maybe through a doctor that did a TOVA and did an evaluation. And then they discover these letters ADD or ADHD. And all of a sudden they're like, wow, I think I know why I've been struggling. And as we all appreciate, um, one of the main things that we then do is give a drug, uh, usually a stimulant, something like Adderall, to try to restore that. Sometimes it's behavioral therapy if you can afford it and have access to it. And those are the tools that we have that most people have access to. That's sort of the, I'd say, the status quo, the paradigm of medicine for the mind in general, and certainly for attention challenges, is a pill. 
And that doesn't really train attention. I mean, if you strip away that chemical boost, you're back to where you are almost immediately. And so there's no real enduring plasticity in the brain that's leading to sustainable effects. And so most people don't do what you do. They don't have quantitative metrics of their attention that they could follow over time and engage in a program to strengthen those abilities like they may strengthen their endurance or their physical muscles or their hearing. And so, yeah, I think it's actually really rare and a missed opportunity, which is why I do everything I do. Well, hopefully we can get a million or so people paying attention to this episode for at least a portion of it, right? (laughs) That'd be wonderful. (laughs) Now, you mentioned Adderall. Uh, When I was at Warden, I did go on Adderall. In fact, it was funny. The psychiatrist who had been trained by Dr. Amen, he looked at me and kind of like, oh, tech bro wants Adderall. I've seen this before. When he saw my brain scan, he just looked at me and he shook his head and he said, Dave, inside your brain is total chaos. I don't know how you're standing here in front of me. You have the best camouflage I've ever seen. And by camouflage, he meant that I could look and act normal like a warden school attendee, even though my brain was kind of scrambled, right? And I was really, really struggling to pay attention. I could like bite my cheek until it would bleed or, you know, pinch my thigh or something and just really like effort my way in. But eventually willpower didn't work. What I found though was increasing mitochondrial function, like actually the ability of the cells in my brain to make energy really helped me pay attention. And in Bulletproof Coffee, I've had countless people tell me they went off Adderall when they started drinking butter and coffee. Today, I do Danger Coffee as my new coffee brands because it's got minerals and electrolytes that I think make a different kind of experience. But what's interesting is the MCT oil makes ketones, which power mitochondria in a different way. And it felt like with that, I didn't necessarily need something like Adderall, but I couldn't take Adderall because it made me want to punch people. Like it was really a gross feeling. So I switched to modafinil, which I've popularized as a smart drug in nootropic circles over the last 10 years and kind of went on ABC Nightline about it. And I don't have a problem using drugs or supplements. Today, I use modafinil about half the time just because I like it, but I use 50 milligrams or 100 milligrams of low dose. And it feels like it helps me with smoothness and it probably lowers my variability. And in fact, I measured it once that it lowered my variability in my attention. But overall, I'm I'm happy with how my brain works on or off the drug as long as I get good food. Do you think nutrition is a major variable that people overlook when it comes to paying attention? 100%. I mean, there's lots of variables and, you know, we all have our focus areas and you have yours and, you know, mine has largely been using interactive experiences, both through video games and other approaches in order to fine tune these operations. But that's just one sliver of the conditions that are necessary to be optimized in in any way, right? And so nutrition, 100%, physical fitness, 100%, Adequate and efficient sleep, also critical for this, oh, yeah. these type of functions. I mean, everyone's probably nodding right now because we've really grown to uh, recognize how important that is for attentional function. And then, you know, stress management. I would say not no stress. I think stress is really good to some degree to push the body. That's 
how we were built, both physically and cognitively. We respond to stress. We would not do well in an environment that was completely passive with no challenges. But there is a type of hopeless, helpless, chronic stress that's also very damaging to the brain. So somewhere in there is the sweet spot for each person. And I think dialing all of those things in, including social interactions, I would say time and nature, there's a long list. And that's why when, as I've moved technologies from my lab and center at UCSF into companies, and now we have products and still trying to uh, be very careful and deliberate with my messaging that this is not some holy grail, like play this video game, you're fixed. This is one tool on a whole belt that you should be wearing. And we we intentionally limit the amount of gameplay to just 25 minutes a day, five days a week, even what we consider a dose is just a month dose because it's not meant to be a replacement of all the other things, proper nutrition, sleep, physical exercise, and time in nature, social interactions that are all important for being a comprehensive, well-rounded human being and having good attention. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body. Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave. For a seven-day free trial. You probably eat these so-called healthy foods like spinach or raspberries because you think they're good for you, but then you don't feel any better. And in some cases, you might even feel worse. So then you eat even more of the foods that make you feel worse because you think they make you feel good. That happened to me. So what would happen if instead of just jumping from one superfood trend to the next, you listen to the only source that ultimately matters, your body? Your body will tell you exactly what foods, supplements, or probiotics you need right now so that you have better health. All you need for that is to take one test, Viome's Full Body Intelligence. This is a tool that I use that helps me understand my body's specific needs so I don't have to keep guessing. You take the test at home, you get your results back, and find out exactly what you should and shouldn't be eating so you can have better digestion, sleep better, focus better, better mood, better energy. And sometimes you only have to make the change for a short period of time. And hey, you'll probably find out that you're one of the majority of people that shouldn't be eating spinach. They'll also create personalized Viome Precision supplements for you that come right to your door every month. And they change when you have more information. Check it out for yourself. Go to Viome.com, V-I-O-M-E dot com slash Dave and save $110 on your test and get 10% off a year's subscription. I've worked with Viome for nearly 10 years. I'm an advisor to the company. This stuff is real. Does it matter what video game you play? For sure. And I would say it's the same logic of does it matter what drug you take? Or <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's a perfect one. I'll just leave it to that. Does it matter what drug you take? Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> there are some drugs that'll kill you in a second and other drugs that may change your life or open up your perspective to the world. And, you know, there's the full host. And games are just like every other category. There's an incredible amount of variability within them. Some will be fun, but won't necessarily have a positive and enduring impact. And that's fine. There's plenty of drugs that are fun too that might not have that impact. And there is also different types of interactive experiences. I mean, we're talking about video games, but video games are not magic, right? They're a fun, engaging, hopefully digital interactive experience. I mean, that's what they are. And so from that perspective, they're an experience like any other that can change your brain for good or for bad, right? There's no sort of ethical force in how these things change you. They put pressure depending on how you engage with them. So there are some games that may have certain benefits in some domains of your activity and how you function, and others that may have different ones. Um, And basically anything can be built into a video game. In fact, you know, at Neuroscape, we have just published our third paper on a game that's essentially concentrative meditation. I mean, you play with your eyes closed, all the reward cycles and the mechanics are very much in a line what people would think of as Vipassana. Um, but it's a game, you know, it has game elements to it at the very least. So we have physical fitness games, games in VR that allow you to like navigate three-dimensional worlds. And so the, the devil's in the details. What game is it? How is it designed? What is it targeting? And then what's the data that it does what it was intended to do? So all those go into it. Lieutenant Colonel Grossman came on the show a few years back. He wrote the books on combat and on killing and studied how first responders respond to traumatic situations and school killings. And what he found was a common variable in all of the really bad school shootings was heavy experience with person shooter video games. In fact, he calls them mass murder simulator training. Uh, So the rule for my kids is you can play games where you shoot at robots, but you don't play games where you shoot at humans because it's bad for your soul. Mm -hmm. Good advice or bad advice? It's a complicated one. And it's not my area of expertise. Like all of the games that I have ever built and put out there and studied have no violence in them because I don't think it's a necessary ingredient for the effects that we're trying to yield. So why add in something that's so complicated and may have negative benefits, may have negative effects? I think that the data is mixed and it's not necessarily because it doesn't have harmful effects in some people. It's just that there are so many people consuming all sorts of things from violent TV to all sorts of things. It's very hard to really dial in with conviction what those effects are. But I'm on the same page as you. I have, you know, when we actually met many years ago, I don't know if you remember this, we were at a conference together. I'll have to look mind, body, green, maybe. I have to look it oh, up. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Do you remember that? It was yeah, a long was time one they put on before all the pandemic stuff and they invited a bunch of interesting thinkers. Uh, in the Palm Desert. Yeah, okay. Exactly. We, did, we did chat. Yep. Exactly. We sat, we sat at, you look so familiar. <laughs> I, I, that. Thank you for reminding me. We, we sat at lunch <laughs> together. That was the first time we met each other. I think it's, we haven't seen each other since. And um, the reason I brought that up is I did not have children in those days. Um, I do now. I have two little kids. Oh, congratulations. Yes. Thank you. Little ones during COVID. Um, so, you know, you can't help but have your perspectives, even as a scientist, colored by your life. and. 
you know, I've talked publicly about video games for so many years and the question of violence in video game comes up. I don't have a super strong opinion on it. It's not what I do in my own work, but I present what I said to you. The data is mixed, but now I have kids. Now I actually have to make a personal decision, not just an academic one. And I feel similarly personally to you that it's nice to have games that are engaging and challenge you and reward you and get your adrenaline going, but extreme violence towards other human-like characters is not something that I'd be putting on the list for my little girls uh, anytime soon. I, I think I would be okay as teenagers if my kids wanted to shoot at zombies. Uh, because it turns out there are actual real zombies in the world walking around right now, and, and you should be able to call them out automatically with your nervous system so you can avoid them. Some of them even vote. Oh, my God. <laughs> now, in your work, and I think this is really helpful for listeners to understand how their brain works, how focus works. You talk about top-down and bottom-up thinking and how it relates to paying attention. Talk to me about those kinds of thinking and what they do for your attention. Sure. So bottom-up is the more ancient version, more ancient, ancient type of attention. So if you pretty much look across any animal, even animals that have not very well-developed brains, they have this bottom-up attention. And what bottom-up attention is, it's sensitivity to the environment that automatically, reflexively triggers you to direct your resources, whatever they may be, at it. And you could imagine the survival advantage and why it was evolutionarily selected for in that you need to find food. You need to avoid toxins. If you're evolved enough, you need to find mates and have babies. And so it's fundamental to the nervous system is this type of attention, right? A, like a flash of light, a loud sound, you're orienting to it, even if you didn't have the goals. That's bottom right. up. It's still part of our system, right? You go to cross the street. It's right? measurable. Like someone who's on drugs or on toxins will have a much, like someone who's smoked a lot of pot, it's going to be slower, right? Yeah, there's so many things that alter this from lack of sleep. It varies. It's a state-like effect, but you know you, you know it when you're crossing a street, you're, you're looking at your phone, you're engaged in thought. Someone hits the horn, you activate, right? Hopefully. And that's, that's right. bottom up. That's bottom up. Top down is looking in your phone, being lost in thought. It is goal-directed attention. It's not necessarily related to survival. It's not necessarily directed at the things that are most important or most salient in the world. It's how you direct your attention based on choice and decisions. And that's mm -hmm. what humans pretty much do very uniquely is that type of attention. And also top-down attention is, can be switched and moved and navigated and in all sorts of ways. And a lot of our challenges with technology and, and the modern world in general is a collision of top-down and bottom-up because technology companies, you know, and the people that design for them are smart people. And they, whether or not they were aware of bottom-up and top-down, are certainly aware of tools that they have that can create bottom-up sources that pull your attention whether it's notifications from buzzes to vibrations to lights to sounds, these are still very powerful sinks for us. And they're used very effectively that way. And we actually, we have to combat against them if we're going to maintain our top-down attention. Okay. Is it more helpful to train top-down attention or bottoms-up attention? I think that there's value for both. Most people, when they 
feel that their attention abilities are not as good as they should be when they're struggling with it. That what they're largely talking about is their top-down attention. They feel they, they might be highly sensitive to the environment, but what is getting them in trouble at school or work or in their relationships is they're not holding their top-down attention at the level that they want to for as long as they want to. So that's usually what people with ADHD are suffering from is the top-down attentional deficits. And that's what the type of things that I've worked on, especially in our video game that's out there now as an ADHD treatment is really targeting that specific type of attention. It's kind of scary. I've seen those videos of classes in China where young kids, I'm guessing seven or eight, all have... It looks like HEG devices on, monitoring whether they're bringing blood to their prefrontal cortex and notifying their parents if they're not paying attention enough so they can get yelled at later, notifying the teacher. I've often thought as a, a teacher, I was at the University of California, Santa Cruz for five years. I taught like working engineers how to build the first version of the web. And so I, was like, I would love to know if I'm losing track of my class so I could throw something at them or talk differently or do something like the feedback loop would be great, mm-hmm. but it seems like that could be toxic. I mean, can you overtrain attention in kids so that they lose their ability to play or experience joy? It's a good question. I would say that is probably unlikely with just training approaches itself. Can you do it with drugs? Sure. And we probably do already accomplish that sometimes. What's the best over- one for that? By over-medicating, there are certainly reports of kids on Adderall that feel that they do, that, that it does impact their joy or their personality in the goal of improving their attention. The powerful thing about training attention, whether it's through a video game or another approach, like the video game is, a, is something I know well because we've been studying it for 15 years, is that when you play it for long enough, you feel a certain percentage of people, around 70% in adults, feel that they are better able to focus their attention. That's after like a month or six weeks. It certainly does not happen as quick as like a single dose. Of playing any, or you're of saying- playing of, this game, of playing our game Endeavor. And what's, game. This is a game called Endeavor specifically. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And what platforms is Endeavor on? So um, maybe I'll, I'll just slide back for one second and tell you a little bit about the Endeavor story. When we met all those years ago, I had a game that we had published in Nature showing that we can improve attention in older adults. That game right. was called NeuroRacer, and that's what I was there speaking about. I've played it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So since then, Achille, the company that I co-founded, licensed the technology, the patent, essentially, behind NeuroRacer and built a game called Endeavor. And it's been a decade now. And over those years, dozens of research studies have been done in different populations. They kept replicating the original finding in nature that playing the game improves your ability to sustain attention outside of the game. So your TOVA gets better. And also now what we've shown in ADHD studies is even your real life focus as subjectively measured by how well you're able to engage in tasks of daily life also improve as well. And so that game, after many, many years of clinical trials, including a phase three trial, so a double blind placebo controlled randomized multi-site trial in children presented to the FDA was approved during COVID as a class two medical device. So this was the first video game ever approved by the FDA for any medical condition. And in this case, it was for children, specifically eight to 12 year olds with 
attention deficit disorder. Hold on a second, though. If the FDA approved it, doesn't that mean that it doesn't work and has massive side effects? <laughs> this is an exception to that. Okay, got it. Got it. Just checking. <laughs> I can tell you that taking a video game to the FDA was a unique experience for myself as well, because you're right. They don't tend to look at what I define as like experiential treatments. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a very, very new submission for them. And it actually went into a, a category called de novo submissions, meaning that there's no predicate to fall on. It's a completely new category. And thus it spent two years in the review process of going through the data and understanding from hundreds of children that have played it. And it was eventually approved. So now a doctor can prescribe it. So that game is called Endeavor RX. It's our prescription game. It's for children. It is only available via prescription. And they can play this with Adderall or as an alternative to it. So you can actually now get insurance to pay for video games, which is why you went to the FDA, which is brilliant, by the way. Insurance companies should do something useful. Maybe this is one of the few things that they'll do. You you just really hit a very triggering point to me in a good way. Um, <laughs> let, let, me t- let me tell you about that. Yeah, so, please do. <laughs> so, so I spent over a decade designing this game and then dozens of research studies published in great journals, two years at the FDA to get that approval. And then we bring it to the world. And what do we find? Insurance companies really don't want to reimburse for it. Insurance um, companies so, don't want to reimburse for anything. I mean, let's face it, it. Exactly. And there's nothing about FDA approvals that makes an insurance company have to approve for it. It's, it's a big oh, problem. Yeah. And so we've struggled there. Um, we have, I think, over 15,000 prescriptions written by doctors for children. And we have lots of success. Every month, more and more children are playing their medicine, essentially. But we still struggle with widespread insurance reimbursement. And that is a real burden for any company. A giant drug company can push through this phase, this sort of valley of death between re- regulatory approval and insurance reimbursement. But for small companies, it's very hard to do that. And so that's been an area of struggle. One that we continue to try to push on is the need for insurance companies to say, hey, we have children in need. We have a game that's been through a lot of research that's FDA approved that has essentially no side effects. This should be something that's reimbursed. And that's something that we are still pushing on. It, guys, it's called Endeavor OTC. And I'm actually installing it right now on my phone. And I actually knew about NeuroRacer, but I didn't understand that was the tech in Endeavor OTC. So I'm installing it right now to see if I notice a difference because my intentions are very well trained at this point, but I'd be willing to to spend... Yeah, that's great. It it is exactly the same as NeuroRacer from the mechanics point of view that has a much better game envelope around it. But I want to point out a difference there. So what you're downloading now is called Endeavor OTC, which stands for Endeavor Over the Counter. And so what happened several months ago is that given the slow adoption of the prescription treatment for children because of the insurance reimbursement delays and the doctor gateway, we, we did a study on adults and found that it actually improved their attention seven times the level of what we saw in children. And it also has 70% reporting some improvements in a well-validated metric of quality of life. And we also know that the number of adults with ADHD has continued to increase, especially through COVID. And so what we released there that you're downloading is the same game as Endeavor RX, but does not require a prescription 
and is targeted for adults. So it has the same core mechanics, but it doesn't have all the connections with the parent and the doctor and all the other elements that go into the prescription version of it. But the core ingredients, the active sort of the engine of the game is all there in Endeavor OTC. So we just released that. We're really excited. We're getting great traction on that. And I'm happy that after a decade of writing back to people from their emails and saying, how do I get Neuroracer? I'm like, well, here it is. It's now available. Thank you. I consider it unethical when the trade union of physicians and drug companies requires you to get a permission slip to buy something you want to buy. Like I didn't sign up for having my daddy uh, or my mommy be my government or my doctor telling me what I can and can't do with my own biology. I am a biohacker and I you know, if I want help or consulting, then I hire the right experts. Sometimes they're world-class doctors and sometimes they're not. And that's up to me. So thank you for, for breaking through that. People are asking what the price is. Um, it is 25 bucks a month or it looks like 1083 a month if you do a year subscription. So not crazy expensive. I am going to do the year version. And guys, this isn't like prearranged or anything. I didn't realize this was NeuroRacer because I liked it. It was just too much of a pain in the ass. And we don't have a license for 40 years of Zen, which is my neuroscience company. And I have, I don't know, $100,000 worth of neuroscience gear in my house. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. So this is cool because it's an affordable way to train your attention. What do you don't have ADHD, though? Does it still help your attention if you're already normal or you think you're normal? That's a great question. So we have lots of data showing that that convinces me that this is a tool that improves attention pretty much across the board. And it just so happens that people with ADD, as the name would imply, and ADHD have a lot of attention problems. But we have data from all sorts of healthy populations. Our nature paper was healthy older adults that were in that study. We've had data from depression and MS and many different clinical indications. So we took one through the FDA, but yes, I would think of this as a way of improving attention abilities. And I'm really curious what your listeners think about it when they play it. I do want to note that 
you might not feel the effects immediately. It's not a drug that's just dumping and changing neurochemistry dramatically. Picture training for a marathon. You got to do a little bit of work here. I could also tell you that game is hard. It's a game that you'll see. You'll tell it's a game. It's cool looking. It's lots of rewards and characters, but it uses a closed loop system. So it's constantly adapting the level of challenge based upon your abilities in real time. It's like the ultimate personal trainer and it's going to kick your butt like a personal trainer would. So be bear with that. One other little tidbit I'll tell you. It's funny, Dave. I, I, I expected you to say what you did about sort of the firewall of someone else making a decision. And I actually didn't want to have this conversation with you until we had the OCC. Uh, but, but by the way, that's the beginning of the game. So uh, oh, I have installed. Nice. All right. I'll figure out how to turn it off now. Didn't mean to interrupt you. It just started. <laughs> no, I loved it. Yeah. No, I, I wanted to have this conversation with you because I knew that this is the direction we're going as we released it from that prescription firewall. Because I remember our discussions. I remember meeting you. I know what you do. And I wanted to talk about it when it was available. This would have been a really frustrating conversation for me and maybe probably for you a year ago. And so that's out there. The other thing that I wanted us to include that wasn't there until like a month ago that I also wanted to do before talking to you was that we now have embedded in the game a focus score. Um, oh, cool. Yes. See, I knew you'd like that. That uses gameplay data on your first visit to give you a baseline. And then it uses data to predict where you'll be in six weeks from now. And I could tell you that that focus score, although it is an engagement feature, is not just an engagement feature, feature like update your, you know, like a high score or anything like that. That was, we worked a year for that to find a metric that we could pull from game data that predicts the clinical outcomes in our research studies. So that score, the change in that score correlates with like the change in TOVA in our trials and the change in reports of, of improvements and functions. So it's a meaningful measure, not just like a cool thing to see change over time. And you will get reports in the game now about how that's changing. So if you happen to be someone that likes to quantify and not just hack and not just improve yourself, we now have both of them in there. So that's very recent. You want to know if your hacks work. So doing a hack without a measure of success isn't much of a hack. And the good news is today, things like heart rate variability. Well, if you woke up in the morning and you were better recovered, you could probably say that something you did worked or didn't. Um, but when you have really precise measures of your focus and your attention, you can just more easily hack. And if you have a closed loop biofeedback system, so the original days of quantified self, these are kind of like stamp collectors. Like, oh, look, I have all these stamps. Will you ever going to send a letter? No, I just like them. They're pretty. And gathering data about yourself that isn't actionable, whatever. But if you have a week's worth of data at the end of the week, you could say, I noticed a pattern. But if you're mm -hmm. getting feedback in under 350 milliseconds for the average brain, or maybe 240 milliseconds for my brain, then all of a sudden the brain changes and you can change your body uh, really, really quickly. And so I, I know you're doing some work on this front and there's a bunch of neuroscience people doing stuff that you wouldn't imagine. Like I, I was at Burning Man as we're recording this literally two days ago. And I woke up at 5 a.m. Uh, for a, a daybreaker. This is like a drug-free morning dance thing with my friend Radha DJing. So we're out there dancing and then this black ambulance that's been modified to be an art car pulls up and this guy gets out and goes, hey, do you want to 
neurological experience. And I'm like, heck yeah. So I get in this thing and sit down and he's got a full biosensing lab there on the plan, wiring up heart rate and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then doing a, um, a vibrational experience with specific mm-hmm. vibrations on different parts mm-hmm. of the body. Uh, I, know, I know who you saw. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. Uh, he didn't know who I was until I was done. He's like, oh my God, this is a peak experience. It was cool. But That's the idea is he's doing the same stuff that you're doing, same stuff that I'm doing at 40 years of Zen. We're like, how, what are the different things we can measure on the body that we could then provide feedback on? And you've gotten really into this. So talk to me about multimodal biosensing and how mm. you can use that even in the context of developing your game. Yeah, um, we actually use a lot of the same technology that was in that black ambulance. There's a company down south called Biopack that makes some some brilliant physiological recording, like research grade that's used in labs all over the world. And during um, one of my COVID projects, when data collection slowed down for obvious reasons, uh, I was like, let's build stuff in preparation for today when our labs are open. And one of the things that I'm interested in, and I think you'll appreciate this, is that If you use one recording modality, let's say EEG or fMRI or FNIRS or SPEC, whatever it is, it's going to be limited, undoubtedly, right? Because that's, you know, how quantitation works is quantification of physiology is going to have inherent limitations based upon the methodology that you're using. So you stick an electrode inside a brain of an animal, single unit physiology, it gets all this really beautiful, detailed information about a single neuron, but it doesn't really understand the entire network phenomena. You record information with fMRI, sure it understands blood flow, but it has slow timing limitations. EEG is faster, but you don't know where it's coming from. It's always Mm -hmm. like, Here's the advantage, here's the disadvantage. So I was like, how about if we create a system and just record all the data? So where's the limitations in putting together this dream system, what we called it? And we started this program called Multimodal Biosensing. We wanted to see how much data we can actually record with very high fidelity um, in and make. You know, So that's one challenge. And so we have over, I think, over 180 electrodes now in UCSF, in our labs here. So from across the brain, the eyes, heart. I mean, not 24. I, I'm having electrode envy right now. Yeah, well, come down. We'll hook you up. It's quite an experience <laughs> to, to get hooked up to. And then it all reads out in one big monitor. It's awesome. I think I, I'm pretty confident this is the most data ever recorded from a human being in one session. And, you know, and that's great. And it's cool. And it's fun. And it's scientifically interesting to record all that data. But it presents new challenges. How do you interpret so much data? And how do you interpret it rapidly so that it's actionable, as you said, within hundreds of milliseconds? And so there we have team members that are experts in signal processing and machine learning, especially to be able to interpret this data. And so that's what multimodal biosensing is. It's a program that we're very excited about. How can we quantify physiology across all these different channels in order for us to understand in real time the state of an individual. So we're not gonna, we're not like talking about reading out specific thoughts or memories, but what is their level of stress? Where is their mood up or down? What's their valence? What's their arousal level? Can we get some reflection of their awareness? And then take that data in a closed loop and use that to guide the experience that we're presenting to them. What's emerging is that when you get a picture of someone's pulse wave, which is an interesting thing that happens inside, like how quickly can you carry a wave from one side of your your body to another through your circulatory system, and you get heart rate variability, and you get 
something called GSR, which is galvanic mm-hmm. skin response. This is a very old biofeedback thing. And you get respiratory rate, whether it's from heart rate or it's real. And you measure exhaust gases and breaths per minute. And you put each of those individually, you can train and you can gain control of. And like we have all these control systems that aren't labeled that you wouldn't know were there until you start biohacking. But when you take all of those and put them together, and especially with AI, you see these weird things. Like when I was um, CTO of the first company to get heart rate from the wrist, uh, the way your Apple Watch will do today, just effortlessly 10, 15 years ago, that was hard. What you end up realizing is, is that when you put the signals together, you could use heart rate to really predict breath. You could also use breath to predict heart rate. Dr. Love, who was on the show, Paul Zak with oxytocin, said he dropped 80% of the, the blood tests that he was doing because using multimodal sensing, he could predict your levels of oxytocin with 95% accuracy. So mm. you're at the very cutting edge of saying, well, all the signals coming off the body, if you combine them, which we've never done before because we didn't have the compute mm. power, yep. we're cracking the code of being human, it sounds like. We're super excited about it, right? Combining them in a way that's interpretable and actionable is a, is is an immense technical challenge, yeah. and you know it's going to take us years to do that. and And then the goal is to reduce it down to see where is the most information density, and do we really need all of this? Because right now, like no one's going to hook up 180 electrodes at home, and of course not. So what we want to do is say, okay, let's bring it all on at the highest level we can in a lab. This is what labs are good at. And then figure out what do we actually need to get the most important data and figure out what we can then deploy in the real world, in people's homes and clinics and schools and gyms and things of that nature. So that's one direction that we're going and we're really excited about it. I'm imagining that there's a day coming where you gather all the data, which is hard. You're going to have people submerged in tanks with tubes coming down. I mean, it's going to be pretty heavy-duty stuff, but you don't need that many people where you do that, where all of a sudden you go, oh, if you boil all that down, you can blink a light in the left eye in the upper left quadrant four times while simultaneously playing a 2,000 hertz tone in the right ear. No, 2,600 hertz for my computer hacker friends. And what you all of a sudden, oh, and most people, it snaps them into a different state, kind of like EMDR was discovered by, you know, watching tennis without moving your head and noticing a new mental state. So instead of accidental discoveries, you're going to be digging in. What is the holy grail for you with biomodal sensing? What do you want to be able to do with this? I want to be able to use it like in the millisecond level. I want that data Mm. to be fed into a real-time multi-sensory immersion system. That's sort of, that's where I'm mm-hmm. heading. So we, we actually have that lab too. So we built our multimodal biosensing system, and then we built a sensory immersion lab with really beautiful giant screens, surround sound, scent delivery, wind stimulation. And the goal is, can we use real-time data at the level that we've just been discussing to then guide environments that challenge you, reward you, stimulate you, relax you based upon your own data. So create these personalized, fully (laughs) real worlds. Like this is what excites me about AI. And once you start really pushing on what we're saying here, it can get a little weird and a little scary. And that's only because it has... I think the power to make positive change and positive change can always come with negative change, but it is 
a great potential application of artificial intelligence, of multi-sensory environments, of multimodal biosensing to be able to use real rich, comprehensive data to guide an environment that helps you become the best version of yourself. The original definition of biohacking when I wrote it is change the environment inside yourself and around yourself so you gain full control of your own biology. What you're talking about doing is measuring your biology in an unprecedented way so that you can use that data to change the environment around you, which changes the environment inside you really rapidly, like way more than drugs would when we get this yes. right. Uh, I mean, this is what I want my legacy to be. Is You know, if you think about it, this is what Endeavor and Neuracer does on a really simple level. Like your data in is just like your accelerometer, your tapping, and the environment out is the rewards and challenges in the game. So it's the same closed loop. It doesn't use sophisticated AI, but the idea is there. It's the same idea. It's just that now the data that flows in is so much more richer and meaningful and more comprehensive. And the environment that's fed back to you and the speed at which it is, is so much more real and immersive. And so I think that the changes that we can invoke will be much more powerful and enduring. And I think that this is future medicine. This is how we help ourselves when we are struggling and debilitated by some type of damage to our brain. And also the type of tools that people would use when they're not suffering, but they want to elevate themselves and think at a higher level. Yes. Well, upgrading humanity and elevating human consciousness are core operating principles for all the things that I do. Because it feels like if we don't consciously take control of this environment around us, we have enough tech and enough big companies optimizing for outcomes that aren't in our best interests that if we don't consciously take control of it, it's not the world we want to live in. And I've noticed through my career in Silicon Valley that the technologies that have the most potential for enhancing freedom and human thriving have universally been co-opted, I'll say, for darkness. Things like the very beginnings of the web and the ability for information to be free. It's been completely sucked into first just advertising and then convincing you to buy stuff you don't need and then making everything cheap and crappy and disposable instead of good. And now as a surveillance and control platform for people, that's mm -hmm. not why we built it at all. Mm -hmm. So this time, and one of the reasons this is biohacking is that hackers are the people who say, we need to see the source code or we're not doing it. Uh, mm -hmm. It was hackers who built Linux, which is the operating system that runs still a lot of the internet today because they didn't like it that Bill Gates knew what Windows did and we didn't. So I want us to know what's going on in mm -hmm. our brains. That's one of the reasons I'm interviewing you, okay? I, I knew about the old uh, NeuroRacer, but I did not know that now there's a phone version, but people listening can decide, you know, why are you doing this? Are you putting mm -hmm. evil malware in their brains uh, the way social media does? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. How would you misuse multimodal biosensing technologies and feedback if you were a big, bad Social media company, for instance, maybe more of them strapped to your face, getting biosensing data. It's such a, it's such a good exercise. It's like a scary exercise to go through, but I believe that as a scientist, it's responsible 
for us to do this exercise, to picture the worst use of the things you create. I mean, think of from nuclear technologies, you know, right across the board, technology can always go in both directions, right? Fire could cook your food, it could burn your house down. We always have to be intentional about how we design technology, picture the worst case scenario and build protections around it. So sure, with a multimodal biosensing system coupled with a sensory immersive experience with AI guiding that flow, that closed loop flow of this data, there is all sorts of potential to change the brain in almost any way you choose to. And so you can drive people towards being less high performing or decrease their attention or decrease their mood. And it may not be the goal to do that. But if the goal is something tangential to the goal of optimizing abilities and care is not taken to do the research and monitor for adverse effects, you might be unintentionally doing it, even if you're not evil. And I think that's a lot of what happened over the last 15 years with our technology. So we monitor for all sorts of things that are unexpected but possible. So it would actually be a lot cheaper to use this new multimodal biosensing and biohacking to put people into a stupor instead of just forcing a plant-based diet on them, don't you think? I mean, it could certainly be used to guide people in a negative way. I feel so gross even saying that out loud because it's something that I've worked so hard on and love and really think it's going to help so many people and children. So I want it to be that solution and we still have so much work to do, but it would just be irresponsible to not say that it could not be abused because it could. Adam, we we have to talk about risks with all new technologies because there are always about 4% of people are sociopaths or psychopaths. And this is provable. And another substantial percentage of people are narcissists, and that's getting worse. And these are the people who will actually do this. And they won't, well, the narcissist won't know they're doing harm because they can do no harm in their little mental story. And the sociopaths, they know they're doing harm, they just get off on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that means we need to turn this around. Can we use this kind of technology to identify the narcissists and sociopaths? Well, that's a good question about the, let's just say, the sort of interpretive value of the multimodal biosensing system outside of the closed loop, which is where we put a lot of our attention. So once we have a system that could capture such rich data and interpret it in a meaningful way, we'll also learn a lot about people's abilities and their motivations and their their mood and how they regulate and how it changes. So it has like some basic neuroscience contribution as well. There's a dark side to just the monitoring aspects of it. And tests have been used in great ways, but they've also been used to segment people in a way that's probably harmful. So again, how do we use this data in a way that elevates us as humans and, and doesn't diminish us is a good question. When people play Endeavor, your new game, they're giving you a ton of data about their nervous system. Who owns the data? Right now, it's really a closed loop system. The data is just being used directly to change the game. And you don't save the data? 
No, it's staying in that system. Okay, cool. So there is no persistent data. So you don't have a picture other than probably my focus score over time. So you could identify people who focus better than others and people who... Exactly. So we have like anonymized snapshots of what is being generated, but not at that level where we could say, oh, Johnny did this or that. It's a really good area of questioning because we're just releasing this now. And we're trying to not just work on data, who's saving it, but privacy and can it be hacked and things of this level is so important for us to pay attention to. <laughs> One of the guys in the Upgrade Collective, by the way, guys, you can be in the live studio audience for these. You go to ouropgradecollective.com. It's cheap. And then you get access to say things like Brandon just did. Please don't let the credit rating agencies access my focus. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, no one will get your data, we promise. Um, or maybe your hiring manager. And right now it's actually legal to do that. And frankly, I'd rather hire people who can focus. And I have sent other technologies to some of my employees, like Mendy, where I'm an investor and advisor. Mendy lets you do HEG training to move more blood to the front of your brain. I, I did like the great grandfather of that 10 years ago. I'm used to sell and like a hand built system of that just because I noticed I could focus much better when I trained my brain to put blood in the focus parts of my brain. Like who would ever imagine? Um, and you can use infrared light and other things like that on your brain to, to do that. So it's helpful if you're an entrepreneur, you might consider getting subscriptions for the game to people who seem to have a hard time with it. Um, but you also might want to hire people who've already played the game. Right? Like, what's your focus score on the game? <laughs> Call me when it's 97 or whatever. I don't even know the way. I, like I said, I haven't played this version. I played the prescription version years ago that was part of your R&D. So I'm super excited to try this. Thank you, Dan. One thing I've noticed, I haven't talked that much on the show about this. I mentioned it a little bit earlier. Because I had Asperger's syndrome, probably as a result of toxic mold and maybe some genetics, I grew up with a very different version of reality than most people. I, I believe our body creates a user interface on reality based on it's programmed by the environment as you're growing up and all that. So I had to go through and reprogram how my eyes work. And I mean, it was exhausting work. And I've done a couple podcasts a while ago about that. I would do the training and I would just like fall asleep and just be a zombie for the rest of the day. And then I did auditory training on my ears to fix parts of the sound spectrum where I didn't hear evenly. Same thing. Oh my God, it was so mm -hmm. exhausting. And even when I started doing EEG in the very early days, 25 years ago, before I started all this, I felt like my brain was cooked sometimes. Like I, I was just so tired. When people play Endeavor, is it mentally exhausting? Yes. Um, <laughs> so play it, play it in the morning or you play it at night? I, I, I think it's similar to what you described and, you know, not dissimilar to going to the gym and getting a workout in. Yeah. We hear a little bit of both. So there's no doubt that, and th that there's an exhaustion factor because it is driving you to fatigue, just like any good workout would. Yeah. But people also report a little bit of an activation after it as well. I'm curious okay. what you think that they do feel not like, you know, quite like they just you know, did a big shot of coffee or espresso, but they do feel activated by it as well. So there's both. We're, we're trying to understand that a little bit more now that we have so many more users than we did in clinical trials. So that data is harder to collect in a study because you need lots of numbers to understand those type of subjective phenomena. But it does seem that there's a bit of activation. I've even thought about how might it be to play it before a meeting? Like, would it mm. would that activation affect because people report that right after they feel like their focus is very heightened. Um, oh. 
Yeah, so there is some recency effects to the training. So that's it's an area that we don't know a ton about. They would never like outcomes in our studies. It was really how's attention improving, how's the long term effects on how you're living your life. But those more immediate subjective effects are really interesting and something that we're looking to understand more. So any of you know your listeners here are a great audience to be introspective enough to notice that I would love to hear from them about what their experience is. I'm sure you will. And it's interesting when I go into writing mode for my books and I'm working on a a new book about neuroscience actually. And what I do is it takes me about 45 minutes. uh, And I usually do this around 930 at night and I've got the room all red lit. So I don't ruin my circadian biology. I'm writing on a dim red monitor and I kind of just have to do something stupid. Like I'll play free cell that game and, and sort of it, it's a slow process of shifting into this. And sometimes I'll run electrical current over my brain or do specific other practices that get me into a specific neurological state where I can hyper-focus. And then I can write usually 15 to 20 pages of epic good book before you know 3 a.m. or something. And then I go to sleep and, and wake up. And it, it, it's actually pleasurable, but getting in that state is hard. So I'm going to try using Endeavor and see if that cuts the time it takes me to get in the state. I'm pretty sure I could do it after if I had to. There's some sort of inner resistance that yeah. that everyone has. Yeah, I'm curious about it because there is like this sort of dual effect of the fatigue, but also the activation you get from using your brain in this way. And I'll be curious to see how it impacts these things that you're trying to do afterwards. It's interesting. There's also the notion of a pre-workout. And a lot of people have heard about Mm -hmm. these. These are basically caffeinated or similar kinds of things that you do before you lift or before you exercise Mm -hmm. that kind of get you hyped up so you can push Mm -hmm. harder. I would be sorely tempted to do a Mm -hmm. pre-workout before I was going to do Endeavor. So my brain has the electrical functioning it needs. So I would take mitochondrial Mm -hmm. supplements, Mm -hmm. uh, MCT oil or ketones or even minerals and electrolytes mm-hmm. and probably even a little bit of glucose, some sugar or honey, uh, just to really have the brain like in the energized state so that you can mm-hmm. go deeper on the focus. I know those are tricks I use to focus. Heck, I'd have a cup of coffee. I mean, it's like really interesting research questions of how does a high level closed loop training tool like Endeavor intersect with nutritional components that may give you more access and allow you to reach higher levels. That's a really interesting research question. I'm taking a note on that idea. So we know that you can intentionally alter your state with Endeavor. What video game would you guess, again, you don't have a study, would be most likely to reduce your cognitive function? I think a lot of games are more likely to be neutral than to reduce function. I bet I could design a game to reduce it. Um, <laughs> Can we design it and give it to all politicians from all parties? The world would be so much better if we could just solve it out a bit. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, I, I don't know of any that I would say this reduces cognitive function, but I can imagine um, that, you know... There a type of game that, like maybe ones with those loot crates, something that's just constantly triggering dopamine over and over. Yeah, games that have a lot of bottom-up stimulus that are causing you to react reflexively 
may make you more sensitive to bottom-up stimuli that may act to make you more distracted. I don't know. I can't think of a particular game right now, but that makes a lot of sense that that would happen. Got it. I could see that. At the same time, there, at least I've seen in my own experience, there's something called P300D, uh, which is evokes potential score. You know what it is, but listeners don't mm-hmm. yet. So this is something I wrote about in Smarter Not Harder. By the way, guys, if you haven't read that book, it's epic, if I can say so myself from a biohacking perspective. And what P300D is, is how quickly your either your ears or your eyes, when something happens, how quickly does your brain get notified that it happened? And there's a delay that as you age, it gets slower and slower up to about 350 milliseconds. When it goes much beyond that, you have early onset cognitive decline, which is reversible. So because of my probably 40 years of Zen, six months of neurofeedback training and the supplements I take, and the fact that I played ping pong for seven years, and the fact that I do play a highly reactive, like arcade style game on on my phone that's all about reaction time, I still have a 240 millisecond P300, which is what about an 18-year-old would have. So I have a young reaction time on reality, which is kind of remarkable. So I, I think fast twitch video games have a place in keeping your brain fast but you may also have to take things that increase BDNF. And I've written about that in my big brain book, which is called Headstrong. So BDNF is brain-derived nootropic factor. So it seems like if you're going to do your game Endeavor, you would also want to increase BDNF. But the fast switch games, you might also want to, but not too much of them. Mm -hmm. I would suggest possibly there's a coffee fruit extract that raises it. Uh, I'm an investor in Paul Stamitz's new company that's studying what they call the stamen stack, which is niacin mm-hmm. plus a small microdose that you can't feel of psilocybin along with specific extracts of lion's mane. Most lion's mane on the market is not, actually; it doesn't work. It's not extracted the right way. So when they take the cheap lion's mane uh, roots from China and mix them in coffee, you're not going to feel the lion's mane. It just makes the coffee taste different and maybe not as good. But, but any other things like that that would increase neurological flexibility so you could train better on Endeavor or any other game? I don't know. It's an area that I haven't done a lot of work in. We actually did start doing literature, scientific literature uh, reviews to ask the questions if we were going to do a combined game nutritional supplement study, which we have not done, what would we do? And we actually really liked Lion's Mane. Interesting. (laughs) A lot of our researchers really presented the story that given the data that exists and what we think is going to give the most benefits in terms of plasticity, low risk, Lion's Mane was actually on the top of our list of something that we might do a large-scale study to see how it interfaces with the game. Good deal. I think Lion's Mane has great promise. I was frustrated because in the early days, 12 years ago in in biohacking, I was really excited. So I bought a bunch of Lion's Mane and I could not get any noticeable difference from it. And then I switched to a heat and alcohol dual extracted thing. So you actually get the active compounds out where they can hit your metabolism. And I noticed a big difference from that. And I've had a couple of companies on with specific types of lion's mane extract on the show. And, and those work, but just the general, oh, it's lion's mane and I, it was a $9 mm-hmm. bottle. That stuff, I don't think does anything. Interesting. Um, That's really helpful to know. If yeah. we 
If we advance with that project, we'll definitely talk to you about it. it, it again, it's outside of our expertise. We've yeah. never done any nutrition. Bring, bring me in as an advisor. Like, let me yeah. help. I'll, 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 I'll all the good brain. <laughs> this is what I know and love because my own brain was so broken <laughs> that I had to become a pro. And I've taught a million people different stuff to do there. So yeah. I would be more than pleased to help you because your game Thank is you. actually improving human brain. And that's really important. <laughs> we need focus and attention. One of the things that I believe focus brings to you is it makes you unprogrammable. And I, I kind of joke that my Danger Coffee, my, my new brand, it's called Danger because who knows what you might do. But one of the goals there is to give people the brain energy to be unprogrammable. So when you get programmed, you weren't conscious. When you were focused, you were conscious. And when someone tells you something stupid, you can be like, that's stupid instead of just reacting and doing it because that's what everyone did. And I think we need people who are just critical thinkers, which the first step to being a critical thinker is being able to focus. And the second one is being curious. Mm -hmm. Are there games that increase curiosity? That's a good question. You know, I've largely focused on focus for the last decade. We have other games that we're now targeting empathy, some work on decision making, some work on empathy game in development, getting ready to release for the first study, um, long-term memory. But I haven't done anything on creativity. And I I love the topic. It's not for lack of loving it. It's just that there's only so many things that uh, that you can do. But that is definitely an area that I would, would approach after we move all these games into research, for sure. Beautiful. Adam, I'm really enjoying our conversation and I'm grateful that you've put so much time and it's so serendipitous. Uh, I did not put your name now with our meeting. I think it was eight years ago, maybe mm-hmm. nine that years when we met at Mind Body Green. Um, those, those guys have been longtime friends. So I'm really curious. And our, our final question, put on your 10 years from now hat. What does it look like? I would say in 10 years, my goal for my own contribution is that we have a system where we could capture all this real-time physiology across the body. The multimodal biosensing system is now established. We've done a decade of data so we can interpret in a meaningful way your state in the moment, and we can do it rapidly enough within couple hundred milliseconds, that it could flow into a closed loop system to then present you, probably using some future version of what generative AI could be, an environment that's maximal, uh, maximally designed to optimize you in the moment, your mood, your arousal, your awareness, um, your focus. And that this is what technology can offer us. They can offer us tools to upgrade ourselves if we feel that we're already healthy but want to go further or for people that are suffering and are not being relieved by the current treatments that medicine offers, new types of medicine. So that's what I think that's obtainable in 10 years from now. Wow. I think we are on the cusp of replacing a lot of drugs with multimodal biosensing and biosensing feedback and uh, right now, I've so. got seven patents in neuroscience that are backing what we're doing at 40 Years of Zen. And I know there's so much more that can come out of university labs. You know, it, your spend on R&D far dwarfs mine. And I'm, I'm very focused on human consciousness and cognitive mm-hmm. enhancement. And 
the ability to increase focus. My look on that is, well, let's remove distractions that are generated automatically mm-hmm. in your body. We can do that already. And then the next thing is increasing voltage in the brain. And we can train that up as well. So I feel like you have a hotter spark, the ability to make more electricity, the ability to have more neurological control and less distractions is working. But that isn't the root of focus. There's something else going on with what you're doing. And I'm very, very interested to try out Endeavor and to just see where the world is going. Uh, You're doing really cutting-edge research, and I genuinely appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. It's been fun talking with you about this. I've I've been excited for this conversation because I saw where my work was going and where your interests have lied converging for a while. I saw this convergence happening, and this is a a fun conversation for me because it it has happened now. (laughs) This was always the goal for biohacking. We've got to get all the data and we've got to get it in our hands, not just in some big company's hands, Mm -hmm. so that we can dial in the signal that makes our bodies and our minds do what we want. And Mm -hmm. you're honing in on the signal in a a really beautiful way. So guys, Endeavor OTC lets you bypass the medical industrial complex. If you have a highly flexible insurance company, who actually wants you to be healthy, you don't exist. But if you did exist, you could use Endeavor RX. Did I say that right? You said it right. Uh, One final little question. It says you have to be over 18 to use Endeavor OTC. I'm assuming that that is for regulatory compliance. Correct. Okay. And if someone (laughs) did choose uh, to offer it to their kids like I do, um, it's not allowed um, because it's not allowed. Is, Is that a good way of saying it? That's a great way of saying All right, guys, you can read between the lines I just wrote there, and I want to make it really clear. Adam didn't say anything right here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Ooh, that was smooth. All right. <laughs> Super smooth. Thanks again, my friend. Guys, I Thank will you. see you on the next episode. Upgrade Collective, thank you for your insightful questions during this. Guys, go to ourupgradecollective.com if you'd like to be in the live audience. And if you'd like to read Adam's book, It's called The Distracted Mind, and I highly recommend it because if you can focus, you have an hour to improve yourself and you're capable of focusing for an hour, you'll get a lot more improvement done in an hour. That would be smarter, not harder. (laughs) See you next time. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. 
Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.